and welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guests today are Monica Duffy Toft, Professor of International Politics at Tuff University's Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, and Sadita Kushi, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Bridgewater State University. Thanks to both of you for coming on and welcome. Thank you, John. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. So we're going to start by talking about the data set that you two have produced, the Military Intervention Project. What you found in this research, uh, I'll quote it, is that, quote, the U.S. has undertaken almost 400 military interventions since the country's founding in 1776. These interventions have only increased and intensified in recent years, with the U.S. militarily intervening over 200 times after World War II and over 25% of all U.S. military interventions occurring during the post-Cold War era. So I give that just as a kind of bottom line up front. We're going to hold off on digging into the substance of it for a second. First, can you tell us about the genesis of this project and what were the limits of the existing data sets and what were you trying to provide with the MIP? Sure, John. This is Monica. I guess I'll start and then I'll have Sudita come in. And uh, it's a great question. And so where it started was I'm a scholar of political violence and war. And I'm also a veteran of the U.S. Army. And so through the Cold War, there was this period where we talked about uh, that we were going to have this moment of peace, right, that the Soviet Union had collapsed and then the, that maybe we could pull back uh, from the use of force, from going to uh, the brink, right, uh, uh, that we witnessed during the Cold War, that fear of the use of force of between great powers. Yet instead, what we witnessed was the United States in this sort of unipolar moment using force much more so um, than we anticipated. We really expected some sort of peace dividend. And so I started thinking about this, uh, even in the 1990s, about just sort of the use of force. And having finished two books on civil wars, had noticed that when outside parties intervene in civil wars, they tend to make them longer. And that's for two reasons. One is they end up legitimating. First of all, when they intervene on one side, Typically, another power will intervene on the other side. So they're legitimating not only the government, which they should, you know, it's a legitimate government, but then the opposition or the rebel insurgency that the, the, that the state is fighting. And they're bringing resources. So it, and, and, and so they're providing legitimacy and resources. So they're extending the length of these civil wars. And I thought, wow, that's problematic because the UN sort of upped its peacekeeping game. And Sadiq is an expert on the peacekeeping. She'll probably go into that through the 1990s. But it didn't seem to be having the impact, the effect that we wanted, which was shortening these wars, ending the human suffering that we were witnessing around the world. And the United States was one of the biggest proponents of this, right, going around the world and sort of trying to alleviate uh, the violence that we were witnessing. And then 9-11 hit. And 9-11, I'm watching that. uh, And, you know, I had been studying and I had just finished a book on the global resurgence of religion. Um, and the United States was attacked, right? It, it hadn't been attacked since World War II, since, you know, before World War II with the Japanese. Uh, and it took a very formidable warlike stance in response under President Bush. Uh, and I think, you know, watching that, I thought, gosh, you know, are we in a new era? What does this look like? And watching the United States not only go to Afghanistan, but then also to Iraq and then get involved in Syria and Yemen. And we could, the list is quite long. Uh, about where the United States started deploying force around the world, 
uh, I started thinking that what does the world of U.S. interventions look like and what kind of impact is it having sort of ha- having sort of suspending judgment? Because at this point, I knew that in military interventions in general uh, were extending wars. But if the United States is responding in the global war on terror, what kind of impact are those interventions having? And so I started thinking through this systematically. I applied for funding um, and I ended up getting quite a bit of funding. This is a five-year project, which we've just finished. Uh, the book will be coming out with Oxford University Press in May. We had an article come out last fall in the Journal of Conflict Resolution. Uh, so it's a very long, big, detailed project to look at, to try to establish patterns and trends and test some hypotheses about the conditions under which that compel the United States to intervene overseas. And then uh, once the United States gets involved, is it making the situation better or worse? And we're talking about governance issues, we're talking about violence issues, stability, that sort of thing. And so, so that was the genesis. And why we felt like we needed to create a new data set was that there were data sets out there, John, plenty of them. Scholars have been working on this. We're not the first ones to ask these kinds of questions. But we honestly didn't think they were adequate. And in particularly, we thought they were not adequate when it came to the sourcing of the conflicts themselves. And so we started asking questions like, did that really happen um, in a given engagement? And and let's say in the 19th century, and it wasn't sourced. And so it was sort of frustrating because as a scholar, our number one thing that we're trying to do is to create data and information that's replicable, right? That people can come along and repeat your study over time. Um, and so we felt as if we had to sort of, we, we relied on those other data sets. And, and, and again, this learning and scholarship is cumulative, but we felt as if we needed to do a really sound job to have a, a, a full and proper appreciation of what this world of U.S. military interventions look like. And so we start with 1776, as you said, and we go all the way through to 2019 um, and catalog and source with at, with at least three sources every intervention. And if another data set had included an intervention that we could not, um, uh, what we felt in, you know, uh, confidently um, uh, source, uh, we kept it in sort of an appendix. But then, you know, to say maybe we need more research here, or maybe data down the road, something gets declassified or something. Um, uh, but generally speaking, any intervention, we're confident that that happened. We have three very, very good sources to, to, to demonstrate that. Um, and then we sort of did our analysis out uh, from there. And I have to say, we were stunned, John, right? We were stunned because, again, we expected this unipolar moment where the United States, you know, it's, it's trying to establish in the, the, the liberal order, and it did after World War II, uh, and the idea about humanitarian concerns and upholding the UN Charter, which is that you don't use force unless attacked. Uh, but the United States was deeply engaged and in the post-Cold War period and then the 9-11 period, it's pretty dramatic, the uptick in the number of engagements that the United States has made. I'll stop there. That was very long. And I'm going to turn to Sadita because I know she's got a lot of brilliant comments to make on this. Thank you, Monica. So um, as Monica has mentioned, this was her her project, her initial research question, and she put a team together uh, at the Center for Strategic Studies to get the ball rolling, to start the data collection effort, and to see what came out of it. Um, And what came out of it was, of course, the Military Intervention Project. Uh, My background prior to joining the team was that I had created a global data set on humanitarian military interventions. 
So not U.S. interventions altogether, but extending the sample to humanitarian interventions all over the world. So I did have the background in terms of formulating a similar type of data set with similar sourcing. So that's how I fit into the picture. And I spearheaded the data collection and the analysis. And I led a pretty large team of research assistants that we had together at the center. And as Monica initially mentioned, we did notice that while there were a lot of data sets in existence on U.S. military interventions, um, and they were generally well done, um, and we relied on them to initially populate some of our case universe, we also consistently noticed that either those data sets did not include the whole case universe of U.S. military interventions. Oftentimes, that wasn't their intention. Oftentimes, the data sets were only about the major interventions. You know, there was a threshold of there has to be so many soldiers on the ground for the intervention to count. Um, And that's a selection choice, a design choice. But we wanted the whole case universe, especially given that in the more contemporary era, U.S. military interventions have been less about boots on the ground and more about special operations, smaller missions, drone warfare, and so on. So focusing only on major interventions wasn't getting the landscape of U.S. militarism quite right when it comes to their involvement abroad. We also realized that even the data sets that were focused on cataloging every instance of U.S. military intervention didn't have the wide enough timescale that we wanted. But beyond that, we realized that the sourcing, as Monica had mentioned, wasn't as consistently applied. So we did something that I believe very few data sets have done up to this point. We created a case study, a two to three page long case study of every single data source that we have in our uh, data set. So every unit of military intervention actually has a two to three page case study that summarizes what happens summarizes the main causes, motivations, consequences, the outcomes for both the United States and the target state, because we care about the consequences not just for the target, we also care about the consequences of intervention for U.S. power and economics, and we also jot down any information we can find on how costly the intervention was, budget-wise, human cost, etc. So this case study is available to anyone. And it is a list, a summary of what that data point means. And within every component of the case summary, we include at least three sources, three confirmed sources of the intervention occurring the way that it is written as, the way that it's coded as. So we created new variables, we coded a whole new set of uh, measurements on how to go into the cost assessment, how to go into the consequences assessment. Um, And beyond this very meticulous documentation of our data set, we also incorporated more non-traditional missions. So the way that our data set is set up is that the traditional MIP data set, the 400 cases that you introduced earlier, those are the more kind of traditional U.S. military interventions. But we also have a separate case universe that includes drone strikes, you know thousands of drone strikes. We also have a separate case universe um, that we actually um, reached out and obtained data from some of our colleagues on the frontier wars. 
So U.S. military interventions against over 100 Native American nations from the 1700s until the 1900s. So we have these three separate case universes. The only reason we haven't melded them together is because, unfortunately, if we did, those 400 cases of more traditional interventions would just go away because there are so many interventions in the Frontier Wars universe and so many drone strikes and so many drone operations that for now, it is going to be methodologically difficult to make those into one in a way that can easily show trends. But generally, time scope, as well as extending the definition of intervention and getting better documentation are the three key reasons why we felt that MIP was a good contribution to the already existing literature. And of course, we thank all the other scholars and all the other existing data sets um, because we, again, would not have been able to do what we did without those sources. Yeah, it's an extremely thorough uh, data set and be useful for all kinds of research. One of the things that you guys kind of have to track um, is national interests. And as we'll get to, one of the findings is that U.S. interventions have gradually become less connected to national interests. But in addition to deciding like what qualifies as an inter intervention, you also had to decide what qualifies as national interests. Can you talk a bit about that variable and how you, how you came to narrow it down? Um, I can go ahead, uh, Monica, I can start. Um, so disclaimer, the national interest variable in the quantitative measurements is a very bare bones variable. So it is the main way that we can think to quantify such a very complicated and fluid and ever-changing concept. But we have created an index, so an additive index of several geopolitical indicators that traditionally across the board, most scholars agree, relate to strategic interests, geopolitical interests, and national interests. One of the measures that we include is contiguity. How close was the United States to the target state? How many land borders? How many water borders? Etc. The closer, ideally, the more strategic the region that we are thinking about. We also include oil um, and natural resources as geopolitical interests. We include alliances, um, not just whether or not the U.S. has an alliance with the target state, but also the type of alliance. So is it a defensive alliance or is it more of a, a pack of neutrality? So there is an ordinal scale within some of these variables that get added up. And the higher the index score, the higher the level of national interests within the target region. We also include former colonial relationships. So um, was the U.S. and the target state ever in a dependency or a colonial relationship? And we have a few other um, individual indicators that attempt to really very, very generally, very lightly touch upon this concept of national interest. Um, but of course, that is not going to be able to do the concept total justice, but it is a start in the quantitative assessment. We do look forward to applying some qualitative assessment to national interests and what we're seeing in this first preliminary result. Yeah. And John, I might add, so, so typically, so when scholars approach large data sets like this, you do need indices of some kind to serve as the indicators of what you're looking at. And so the first order of business whenever you're doing this kinds of analysis is you do the sniff test, right? Is there internal and external validity to what you're trying to test? And, and indeed, what we found is, is that over time, these measures, uh, this national interest measure 
did seem to sort of um, uh, work. And, 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 and it, we felt as if knowing the history, because we did a lot of deep reading here about the different periods and what the United States, different administrations believed that they were fighting for. Uh, and the indicators seemed to really mesh well with what we thought uh, the historical figures thought that they were fighting for in terms of national interest. And as you noted, you know, over time, there's been uh, a lessening of what we've been fighting for. So we're, so we're using force against targets, against opponents, uh, where the national interest at stake may not be as um, uh, large as what you would expect. And, 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 and across the different periods, uh, that seemed quite consistent with what our, our indicator was um, showing. Uh, so during the height of the Cold War, of course, it was a bipolar global um, uh, uh, rivalry between the Soviet Union and the United States or the, the Soviet bloc and, and the U.S. Western-led bloc. Uh, and, uh, and you can look at the data, you can look at some of the pieces that we've already written, and indeed that, that, that national interest score is at its height because the U.S. existential, you could say existentially, the U.S. was under threat, you know, given the strategic triad, the bombers, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, and then, of course, the submarines. There was the threat of thermonuclear war with the Soviet Union at that time. And so there was a sense that in a number of engagements, uh, that the national interest was was threatened. Uh, and in particular, you think about Latin America, as Sadita mentioned, that geographic component, is it near or is it far, uh, is very important as well. And so it's an indicator, it's an index. Uh, you can, you know, somebody can turn to the data set and look at one aspect of that and run some models and see uh, how they fall out. Uh, but we decided to go with sort of this more holistic uh, kind of index of the different components to it. Um, and uh, and it seems to hold. And if I may add also, so the index also, we generally couple it with um, a pretty well-known uh, indicator of national power, the SYNC index, national material capabilities that we use from the Correlates of War project. And we do couple our national interests with the SYNC. And we find time and time again that when the U.S. does indeed pursue lower levels of national interest as per this index, it also tends to target countries with lower national material capabilities. So we are, you know, intervening generally in the recent past against generally much weaker actors relative to ourselves. So those parallel one another pretty nicely as well. One of the valuable things about this research is that it shows with data just how much of an outlier the United States is. And I think a lot of people are not really aware of just how distinct U.S. foreign policy is compared to others. In 1993, Kenneth Waltz uh, published a journal article in which he wrote about the Cold War era. I'm going to quote him uh, briefly. Quote, the interests we identified with our own were even more widely embracing than those of the Soviet Union. More than the Soviet Union, the United States acted all over the globe in the name of its own security and the world's well-being. And then he cites other research to say that, quote, in the roughly 30 years following 1946, the United States used military means in one way or another to intervene in the affairs of other countries about twice as often as did the Soviet Union. So he's citing much older work, obviously, but I think your research bears that out. Um, and it shows even that the more dramatic spike in interventionism actually came post-Cold War. 
Can you try to give a sense of the scale of U.S. interventionism compared to other countries or perhaps to make it narrower other great powers? So if I may, I think it's a great question that naturally arises from our data and our project, this comparative perspective. Um, and Monica is trying and uh, putting in the effort to extend MIP into kind of a comparative project to look at not just the United States and its whole case universe of interventions, but also other historical great powers, including Russia, including China, including the UK. Um, but Unfortunately, right now, what we have is more of an inward-focused data set. So we're comparing the U.S. relative to itself across different eras, but we don't, at least in our data set, don't necessarily have that comparative perspective just yet. So we can't, we can't see whether the U.S. has intervened at higher rates or higher numbers than, you know, a previous great power like the U.K. or Russia or another. Um, we can speculate, of course, and we can use previous work as the one that you cited. But from the MIPS perspective, right now, we are still in the process of getting the comparative lens. Um, but until we do, what we can offer is how has the U.S. changed you know, relative to its own foreign policy? Um, and with that, we can very definitively say that the rate of interventionism has actually increased after the Cold War era quite dramatically. Um, during the unipolar era and into the post 9-11 era. So within itself, relative to its own previous patterns, the United States has grown more interventionists in the last decades. And I'd add, John, so I, so our, my gut is telling me that the United States, you know, is more interventionist than others. But as CD just said, this is a comparative analysis within the U.S. historical record. Uh, and we and I am working on trying to expand this to include other great powers, particularly in the post-1945 period. Um, the other thing about the United States that we want to keep in mind is, is that it, is an, it, it does have strong alliances. And oftentimes the United States was called upon by its allies to help out in a given conflict and or it called upon its allies. We don't want to forget that. I mean, that's what makes the United States in a particularly good way unique is that we do have strong allies. We do want to defend our allies' interests. Look what's happening in the Russian-Ukrainian war right now with the NATO alliance. Um, but we, what's nice is, is that our data set will be able to differentiate whether the United States is acting unilaterally or multilaterally. And if it's acting multilaterally within an established alliance like NATO where there's a treaty drawn up or a coalition of the willing or the co coalition of the capable as we did in the Middle East in the wars in Iraq. Uh, and so I'm very excited to do that kind of work. But as Sadita said, you know, as scholars, this is a hypothesis for us at this point that we then want to test against the historical record um, to see whether that's indeed the case. Because um, there are other states that have intervened elsewhere. As Sadita said, the, the British Empire and then the UK on its own. India, by the way, China to some extent, although China tends to be a hands-off sovereign nation, doesn't like to get involved in internal affairs of other states. And then, of course, the Soviet Union and today the Russian Federation, as we know, uh, particularly after 1999, um, uh, or I should say maybe even 2004 or five, um, now starting to get involved in the affairs of other states. So it's a great question. My gut's telling me yes, uh, but I cannot say with we can't say with any definitive answer that indeed it is more interventionist than other states. Another change within our own system uh, that you guys track um, is the levels of hostility. I'll, I'm just going to pull a few quotes and ask you guys to expand on them. So you guys write, 
While the U.S. has always relied on military force, it generally paralleled its rivals' levels of hostility until the end of the Cold War. Afterward, the U.S. began to escalate its hostilities as its rivals de-escalated. And in your foreign affairs piece, you write, adversaries are provoking the U.S. less frequently, and yet Washington is intervening with armed force more than ever. Can you flesh out that finding a bit more? I know a lot of people in Washington who probably think our adversaries are constantly provoking us and that it's a very hostile world out there and that the U.S. meets this hostility, you know, with grace and mercy. <laughs> yeah, it's a great, great way to phrase it, John. Um yeah, I have to say, for me, this was the most distressing and stunning finding in our research, was particularly the United States understand it's at the pinnacle of power, it's our unipolar moment. Uh, we actually have, the particularly after 9-11, we have the good graces of the international community on our side. We were attacked. We lost 3,000 lives. And by the way, the global community lost lives in 9-11. Um, and, the, you know, Afghanistan was harboring, you know, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban was a wretched regime, Right. So, but, but the United States, yes, we live in a very hostile world. We were attacked. The question is, is why do we have to respond so forcefully with force? So in earlier times when we didn't necessarily have the capability, we would stand back and maybe watch and maybe do something economically or do something backdoor di diplomatically, right? Uh, but in the more contemporary era, the reaction is go after them and go after them really, really hard. And I think another unique and very important aspect of our data set is we do catalog all these drone strikes. So the United States just sends up the drones, attacks, right? Um, whatever target set that, that DOD finds and the you know, uh, Department of Justice finds is legitimate um, without really saying, well, maybe we should think about staying our hand. Maybe seeking vengeance is not always the best means of trying to achieve and secure our national interests. So indeed, we find that when we when there's an altercation with another side, it's the U.S. more often than not that's resorting to the use of force when our opponents are saying, we're done, hands up, you're right? Uh, we don't want to get into an altercation with the United States because they understand the United States is extraordinarily powerful and wields its sword very mightily. And so the international, in a good way, the United States has demonstrated that if you mess with us, we're going to really mess you up but it doesn't seem to have learned that in response, other states are not messing us up as much and they're not responding with the use of force. And elsewhere, I termed that kinetic diplomacy, where it's this over-reliance um, on the use of force first, and then maybe we'll talk. And what, I, what we're saying in the book, what the data are revealing to us is, is that maybe we should rethink that logic and maybe step back, turn the other cheek, perhaps, right? Not always, but perhaps turn the other cheek and see what happens and see if we can create a diplomatic dialogue, maybe work with allies to do some sort of sanctioning economically, um, uh, or to do some sort of backdoor exchanges um, uh, of diplomats or uh, two-track diplomacy with, with you know, private civilians to figure out how to de-escalate this without this sort of uh, pretty uh, quick use of force uh, from the United States. Um, and if I may add to uh, Monica's assessment, so one of the more interesting findings that our data set reveals is that in the post 9-11 era, we actually have the lowest rate of target state initiated disputes 
And target states initiated less than 40% of those disputes. So, you know, when we check U.S. military interventionism, we label any state that isn't the U.S. as the target state or state B. And then through our case studies, we see, okay, who started this, right? You know, who, who initially engaged with this dispute? Um, and that's what that 40% is showing. So the U.S. actually originated about 60% of those disputes. So hostility levels are, are gradual, but we also can talk about the United States um, instead of during the, you know, um, unipolar moment when the U.S. generally responded to already existing disputes in the post 9-11 era, the U.S. was originating disputes more so than reacting to them. Um, and we also keep finding that while in the past the U.S. often relied on threats of force instead of direct usages of force, these threats of force are going lower and lower as part of the overall proportion of how the U.S. wields force abroad. So ideally, we would, instead of directly using force or displaying force, we would start off with diplomacy, economic statecraft, possibly as a last resort, threaten force in foreign policy, instead of directly applying force to our targets. Because John, one more thing I'd add, two things. One is, is that we have a measure from, so let's say the United States gets attacked. So we have a measure for no use of force, right? right? So we can threaten, we can not do anything. That's always a policy option. We can threaten the use of force or we can actually use. So we have a spectrum of uh, reactions that the United States can take. And what we're finding in the more contemporary areas that we're going right to that use of force rather than not even threatening or having no response. So that's one. The second thing is, is that What's even more sort of depressing about this latest statistic or this finding for this latest period is that we are relying exclusively on open source material, right? And still many of the more contemporary events and activities that the United States is doing are classified, right? So we include drone attacks, we include special operations to the best of our ability, but covert activities, right? If, if we cannot get our hands on them and document that, so the situation is probably even worse, right? This is only the cases in the contemporary area that we can document. And so we suspect that actually the figure is even bigger than that. Let's get into some theories about the why that explains this data. You, uh, in the foreign affairs piece, you point to two explanations. Uh, the first is what you call the 9-11 effect, a tendency to dehumanize adversaries. And then the other one is unipolar inertia. Can you guys talk about each of those? Yeah, I'll take the 9-11 effect. Sadita, maybe you take the unipolar inertia one. Yeah. Um, so the 9-11 effect, so again, the United States was attacked, uh, and we were attacked by what seemed to be these very irrational people. And actually, we didn't even want to think of them as people. Uh, they, were, they basically committed suicide in order to attack um, the United States. Uh, and, you know, if you think about what security is about for states. It's about protecting its citizens and defending its territory. And, and, and the fear of death is often related to that in the sense that nobody wants to die when they're defending their territory. So when we, when we get attacked by these opponents that are dying, we hadn't seen anything like that before. Yes, we had seen the kamikaze fighters in Japan, but not to the same extent. And we, we tended to interpret al-Qaeda uh, bombers, right, Mohammed Atta and his teams, as irrational. And when you do that, there's sort of this dehumanization process that happens. Uh, when you do that, it makes it much easier 
uh, to say, okay, we've got to go in and route them out, right? So this this jihadi embrace of these suicide attacks, which were new, um, and you know, it, it's terrorism. They're attacking our civilians. Uh, con- convinced, I think, you know, the American leadership, and then they ended up convincing many Americans that this was an inf- inhuman foe, which is very dangerous because when you do that. Um, then it's a lot easier, right? You question their rationality, you question their humanity, right? It's a lot easier for you to then say, okay, we're just going to wipe them off the face of this earth. And, you know, President Bush, you know, he, he sort of saw this, right? Uh, and interpreted his administration. Um, there's uh, these, these people who were doing this, these adversaries, as basically, you know, what we put it in the article, as a lethal force of nature, right? Uh, and that, there was no way we were going to bargain or negotiate with them, that there was just futile because they're irrational. They just want to kill us, right? And so you were just going to have to annihilate them, kill them to the last person, right? There's not going to be powers of persuasion. You're not going to be able to bribe them out of the situation. And so all you can do is kill every last one of them. And this made it much easier for when the United States started identifying Islamic jihadists, these fundamentalists, um, uh, uh, jihadis with this extremist ideology to say that we have the right now because they're irrational. We can't negotiate. We have the right now to attack them. Um, and we sort of this global war on terror, uh, sort of evolved and explains a lot of what we're witnessing and, uh, trying to deescalate or scale back from that is quite difficult. Once you sort of have this rhetoric and this kind of mindset that we better kill them, before they kill us. So that 9-11 effect was very, very important uh, in explaining this sort of American hyper uh, kinetic engagement around the world. And then Satita can talk about sort of this unipolar uh, moment that we had, this unipolar inertia that carried us through from the 90s on. Yes. So before the 9-11 effect, another reason that perpetuated U.S. hypermilitarism, if you will, relates to kind of a path dependency story. Um, All habits die hard. During the Cold War, the U.S. had this existential crisis, this existential enemy in the Soviet Union. Uh, They were evenly matched, generally, nuclear parity. So there were security concerns and generally a situation where the U.S.'s military buildup was justified in response to another um, rival's military buildup. So during the Cold War, the U.S. military extended, grew. The U.S. um, began to understand the usage of military force as generally in line with these very vital geopolitical national interests. Even in the cases where the U.S., you know, sent covert missions, even in the case of regime change during the Cold War to, you know, overthrow a more left-leaning government um, as a way to defend the U.S. against this communist contagion. Um, whether or not um, we would agree that that was truly in the geopolitical national interest of the U.S., that was the understanding that any time during the Cold War the U.S. militaristically intervened, it was done to protect the country and the people and our ideology from this communist Soviet menace, if you will. And that mentality and those structures and those budgetary um, you know, incentives don't just go away when the Soviet Union collapses. So one moment, the U.S. has this almost evenly matched foe. It builds its whole grand strategy around it. It builds its whole foreign policy apparatus and the Pentagon and all of its defense industries around it. 
And then when it's no more, um, this path dependency continues to carry on. There already is this very big military now, military budget, military technology, um, manpower, and the U.S. now finds itself to be um, what many have called a unipole, um, one of the most powerful countries in the world at the time, arguably a country that could defend itself against, you know, a configuration of other countries banded up against it. And with this great power, the U.S. also has this remaining very, very giant military backing it up. So the path dependencies continue. There is no incentive for the United States to kind of back down, to take on another path, especially after the end of the Cold War. You see the United States involving itself in all sorts of horrible civil crises, ethnic cleansing campaigns, genocide in places like Bosnia, the Balkans, Kosovo, Somalia, um, not necessarily Rwanda. Um, there was a lot of inconsistent application of those humanitarian norms in this case. But we had this big military. We had this big military budget. We were at the top of the world. We were used to understanding that anytime the U.S. wielded its military might, it was to protect itself. So path dependency takes over and we think, well, now every time we are intervening in defense of human rights, in defense of democratization, in protection of free trade, that also is contributing to our national interest, even though the scenario had changed, even though the global power distribution had changed, and those were no longer vital for the U.S.'s security. But that's how they were interpreted, given the continued path dependencies of the time. So there was this natural inertia that carried us through even when the whole global environment shifted, especially since it was a problem from hell, right, as Samantha Power terms it. Um, do you stand by idly as people are getting massacred in certain parts of the world? Or do you try to do something with your very, very giant, powerful military at a point when you have all this global legitimacy and credibility, which, of course, eventually we end up losing um, in the post 9-11 era? Yeah, the uh, parochial interest and kind of path dependency explanation is a powerful one. If it's right, you know, I think it would stun a lot of Americans to understand that it's not that they have a large military to satisfy all the interventions they have to make. It's that we have hyper-interventionism because we have this giant military. The causal direction is, is the other way around. Um, there was a great article years ago by the late Nuno Montiero that challenged the consensus view among IR theorists that unipolarity should be expected to bring a peaceful order. And he tried to show why unipolarity is actually likely to bring conflict. Did you guys engage with that material, and do you think it conforms to your findings? Yes, we did. In fact, we have an article that's under review right now addressing exactly that. And in a sense, you know, if, if you, in our foreign affairs piece, we sort of allude to that in, because we think what's going to be happening is, is that China is going to check our power. I think this is what's happening. Now, we're not going to get a pure experiment here because Russia's now invaded Ukraine. So we're a little distracted with what's happening in Europe and protecting our NATO allies. But indeed, you know, when you get, you know, a, a state on its own, there, we typically think about balancing coalitions, right? Um, so the United States becomes too hubristic, which we believe it did, this inertia that you talked about. Look, I, I don't think we want to underestimate, because we don't talk about it in the foreign affairs piece. We talk about it a bit in the article, uh, but we're going to be developing this more. The success of 1991 in the Persian Gulf, 
Right. So the United States built up during the Cold War a formidable military to deal with a formidable military on the other side. And that was a good thing, right? The Soviet Union was indeed a major threat. So then we get to deploy this army, right, brilliantly, successfully, right? Within months, we defeat Saddam Hussein in a very conventional war. Um, and, and that sort of led to this sort of, sort of hubristic sense, I think, in the United States and a lack of reflection. Wow, if we could wield this here, then we can do it elsewhere. And it sort of did that um, uh, through the 1990s. And, and, and there wasn't anybody to check. Russia was dealing with this domestic house. China was rising. Uh, it's still a question of whether it's definitely a regional hegemon, whether it's a global hegemon or a global competitor. We don't know yet. That's why we're a little nervous. We're watching. Um, and then let's not forget that Afghanistan, we won in Afghanistan. The Taliban was routed by 2000, December 2001, but we didn't appreciate the victory. And we sort of started thinking about, particularly after May 2022, President Bush had a speech at West Point, where all of a sudden we were thinking about nation building. So the sense was, we actually, the United States really does know how to do big wars very well when they're conventional, direct-to-direct kind of wars. The problem is, is that we've gotten, we think that that tool can solve every problem. So we're not reflective enough. Um, and in the meantime, in this unipolar moment, we've created actually a more dangerous situation than might, would have, that, that might have been otherwise for the United States. And I think the Biden administration, to its credit, understood this with respect to Afghanistan um, and decided to pull back. Now, the way it pulled back was not great. Um, but understood that we were wasting an exorbitant amount of American taxpayer dollars um, that were not being, you know, sort of put on the budget, trillions of dollars or billions, hundreds of billions of dollars, um, because the world, as you mentioned earlier, John, is a really scary place. We've now got the Russian Federation. Tomorrow is the year anniversary of that invasion, and that war does not seem like it's going to be going anywhere anytime soon. And we have China now uh, sitting there, rubbing its hands together, by the way, watching the United States and Europe and the Russians all tied up in knots over each other uh, as it can sort of do its escapades in Asia. So the unipolar moment, uh, yes, it may not. And it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't seem to have been uh, the best sort of situation for the United States. We weren't able to fully capitalize it on ways that we might have had the country, the leadership, the citizens really had a true dialogue about what this country stood for and what it needed to defend strategically after the end of the Cold War, and then after 9-11. Did we have to, just think about this, suspend for a moment, did we have to use uh, full force against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda after 9-11? What would have happened if the United States hadn't done that? Now, very difficult. The American population probably wouldn't have stood for it, they, and President Bush needed to show his strength. But what would have happened if we had really stayed our hand and or said, okay, we've won. We we've accepted that we've won, and the, the, the Taliban are routed. Um, and and just think about what a different world we'd be living in right now. It to add, Monica did a great job. So I only have a little bit to add, um, but just a kind of a reminder that yes, we are very much working um, on research that directly tries to see whether unipolarity has made the United States more or less peaceful using the military intervention project. While the paper is still under review, um, the data is currently pretty clear. Controlling for many other factors, including um, power capabilities, including um, geopolitical dynamics, we accounted for a lot of theoretical variables that could possibly be causing 
more or less uh, interventionism, um, the unipolar moment, the switch from the Cold War era um, bipolarity into unipolarity seems to be the biggest explanatory factor by far in um, the U.S.'s increase of militarism. So there's definitely very strong reason to think that unipolarity is probably going to lead to um, more conflict, not less conflict, but the data is still in progress for that. You say that after the Cold War, the U.S., quote, could have pulled back and demobilized in proportion to the new threat environment, which would have enhanced its legitimacy and reputation as a responsible global leader. I want to see if I can get you to flesh that story out a little bit, because again, it goes against, there's a sort of civic religion in Washington that, you know, the kind of Robert Kagan story that U.S. interventionism is really about taming and quelling, a, you know, Hobbesian jungle and pulling back at the end of the Cold War would have led to more chaos instead of enhancing our reputation. I think, you know, this is not black and white. It's neither either pull back or stay fully engaged, right? So there was a very common, a popularized argument about offshore balancing, that the United States could stay formidable militarily, right? But it could balance offshore. It didn't have to be so fully engaged and so trigger happy um, uh, while it was um, uh, trying to secure its vital interests, strategic interests. And what we're finding is, is that many of those interests we were trying to secure were not vital, right? They were secondary or tertiary interests. They weren't vital national interests. So that's one, um, is that it's not black or white. It's the question of the different tools of statecraft. And, you know, we know the traditional dime, right? Diplomacy, intelligence, military, and then economic, and having a proper balance, so for Kagan, it seems like he thinks that we have to absolutely stay fully engaged um, and use of force or the threatened use of force is the most powerful tool. I'm not so sure I agree with that. Moreover, if you look, John, at the data and of surveys from Gallup or Pew, the United States is now seen as a threat around the world, right? It's very disheartening to see one of the proponents of human rights advancement and democracy is now seen as a threat to those right? And then it's also seen as a threat to sort of stability. So that's really disheartening and discer uh, 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 disturbing as an American citizen uh, to see that the data are very clear that we are now, we've delegitimated ourselves in many corners of the world uh, with this use of force. Um, and so, you know, the, the idea of the civic religion in Washington, well, all I would do is point to our data again, which we've already talked about. It's worked, <laughs> the rest of the world de-escalates while we're still escalating. And the question is, is at what point, how far are we going to go before we recognize that in a sense, perhaps the military might, maybe we can concede that we haven't tested for this. And I'm not willing to concede it at this point because I am looking at the surveys. I am looking at other sort of bits of data that Sivita and I have collected that even if that, if that civic religion was correct, it's now worked. So at what point do we pull back and say, okay, We've achieved it. The rest of the world understands that we're going to blow them to bits if they do something that we think harms our vital interests, um, that we don't need to do that anymore, that we've succeeded in cowing our adversaries. Um, and I would like to add it from the perspective of kind of a just war theory angle. Um, and this is coming from someone who studies humanitarian interventions. So I'm not someone who doesn't see a role at all for U.S. leadership or U.S. military. Um, but as Monica said, it's not so black and white. So let's talk about just war theory, which says that war should be used as a last resort 
only when all other methods have been tried, like diplomacy, you know, you know, good faith diplomacy, good faith attempts through economic statecraft, good faith attempts through possibly threatening force down the line. So you need to try many, many other strategies before a country like the U.S. starts considering the deployment of force against their targets. And another part of just war theory would be you need to have the right authority waging that war. Many of the U.S.'s military interventions have been quite blurry, generally sometimes covert. Um, the general public often has very little idea as to what's happening down the line, what's happening on the ground, how much money, um, how many civilian casualties on both sides. So the proper authority channel isn't fully being um, you know, enforced either. And war needs to be done to establish peace. So if the U.S. wages regime change wars, the ultimate goal then isn't to reestablish the peace as soon as possible. It's to go beyond that. It's to change the government dynamic, to alter the country, maybe towards more democratization. But that is not in line with any just war. Just war is about reestablishing the peace or coming to the defense of either yourself directly or defense directly of harmed civilians. And in many of the U.S.'s military interventions, very few components of just war are being followed. Um, and that really, whether it's an academic perspective or a public perspective, even if the public may not always know this just war component, they do know that the U.S. no longer holds credibility amongst many of its allies. Um, when it unilaterally intervenes, when it goes against the majority, when it goes against UN resolution and UN protocol. So credibility is vital. If you have more credibility, then you don't have to rely so much on military interventions to kind of establish yourself internationally. And also with credibility, as Russia is finding out right now, once you do use the majority of your military force um, on a specific target, and that doesn't work, or it doesn't work as quickly or as completely as you want it to or others expect it to, that immediately decreases both your perceived strength and power and your global credibility. So the best thing the U.S. can do for its credibility is to reserve the use of its military force. It conserves its power, it preserves its power, and its perceptions of power to the international community, and the U.S. has always wanted to be seen as, as this beacon of democracy and, you know, rule of law and human rights promotion. Well, it can't necessarily get that unless it is trying in some way in good faith to follow the obligations that come along with being that kind of global leader. You guys suggest at the end of your foreign affairs piece that U.S. restraint in the face of a rising China might be a strategically fitting path forward, and you draw from your research to point to a number of reasons for that. Can you lay those out for us? I'm also going to use another um, theoretical lens here. So there is um, work in international relations related to hegemonic stability theory. Uh, long story short, uh, there comes a time when the current hegemon of the system, which would be the United States right now, is challenged by a rising power, um, in this case being China. And there's going to come a time when the hegemon will either be unwilling or unable to sustain its global leadership role, at which point there will either be a confrontation with the rising power or the rising power will establish itself and, and replace the old hegemon. 
Um, and what we theorize is that if the United States continues to be aggressive towards China as China is rising and starting to balance out the United States, this will actually create a situation where China feels defensive, feels threatened, and it will actually antagonize China to continue to encroach upon the sphere of influence of the United States. So if the U.S. behaves aggressively, if the U.S. behaves militaristically against China, it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy with China having the incentive and some would say the you know defensive maneuvers to react in kind or to create a sphere where you rely on violence to balance out and try to see which hegemonic power will be reasserting itself in the sphere. If the U.S. shows more restraint um, in that case, you might end up in a situation where China exerts itself over its own sphere of influence, but not necessarily tries to encroach within the U.S.'s traditional spheres. And again, whether that may not necessarily be ideal, given that the Chinese government also has very high levels of issues with credibility, human rights abuses domestically. Um, so while not ideal, we argue it might be a better setup than antagonizing China to grow further in aggression and power and its own militarism to challenge the U.S.'s stepping into its uh, kind of spheres of influence. Yeah, and, and so, John, one of the issues with hegemonic stability theory is that there's been a lot of research done on who provokes the attack first, right? And you can't really definitively say that. And I think one of the reasons why we don't know for sure in the scholarly community is it's a strategic interaction right? It's actually the interaction of the two bodies, right? The, the China and the US. And so what we really hope is that through this research, we demonstrate, first of all, that the US has seemed to be sort of um, um, hyper, hyper interventionist, hyper militaristic in the sense of, you know, happy, trigger happy, uh, and that it really sort of uh, owns that and realizes that if it wants to sort of have a, a more normalized relationship with China or a normal relationship that doesn't involve the use of force, that we understand how our actions are perceived, right, in the past, those actions, and that how we might be better in the future so that we do not get involved in sort of a horrific situation where the use of force seems to be or, or is or becomes the only source or the only form of engagement with China. And so we really hope that our research does that, which is why we you know, ended the piece with to talking about this unipolar inertia to say, look, China's formidable there. And it feels as if it's defending its own strategic interests. Uh, yes, the United States has strategic interests in Asia. We have allies there who we've committed. Um, but really, let's think twice about the use of force. Again, I'm going to turn to the Russia-Ukrainian war. Sadita did a brilliant job talking about how when, when states use force and fail, um, like Saddam Hussein in Iraq, you know, showed this, this big, scary army was not so scary. Similarly, Russia, we're seeing today that it's expending uh, uh, lots of resources and losing a lot of lives, um, uh, that that's going to sort of open up eyes to say, maybe this is a little crazy resorting to the use of force. It's not as easy uh, as we think it is. And I have to say, prior to our research, there was other data that showed very clearly that great powers have been losing wars more so over time, right? So in the 19th century, and this is, happens to be my husband's work, Ivan Aragin Top, how the weak win wars and had policymakers just looked at our own history, right? 
Uh, in the 19th century, great powers, and we're talking a 10 to 1 ratio, John, right? So we go up against an opponent that's uh, 10 times smaller or has less uh, population and economic might than us. In the 19th century, we won most of those engagements, upwards of 80%. By the 20th century, by the post-1945 period, great powers, and it wasn't until he looked at all great powers, were losing 50% of those engagements. Right. Think about that. So U.S. gets involved in Vietnam, 50-50 chance we didn't win there. Soviet Union gets involved in Afghanistan, 50-50 we didn't get, they didn't prevail there. And now here we are in Afghanistan. Right. Um, and it, it'll be interesting to watch sort of this Russia-Ukrainian war. But I think it's going to resort probably at some point to a, a, a non-conventional war. Um, and uh, chances are Russia is not going to prevail. Ukrainians are fighting for their own homeland. And this is why we're returning to your China question. Uh, China, I think, respects and understands, and the world is watching what is happening in the Russia-Ukraine situation, uh, that Taiwan, they're going to be fighting for their homeland. And it's an island nation. It's really hard to attack that. Um, and so the use of force, I would hope, China also is learning, and I would hope that, that the use of force is not the best way to go in the modern era um, or ever. Um, historically, and that the United States will learn lessons from this, that maybe we should scale back and really think about enhancing our diplomacy, giving more funding to the State Department, really think about looking at economic development from a holistic, strategic way rather than just helping locales uh, in order to sort of take the use of force off the table and have it really be that thing that we resort to last. Right. Uh, and because uh, we're not saying no force. Right. We're saying but it really should be a resort, uh, a last resort um, after lots of engagement. Monica Toft, Sadita Kushi, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, John. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity.